0: Forward by Lyman Bryson, an educational director, Columbia Broadcasting System. Anyone who undertakes to write a word of introduction to Rudolph Flesch's book should make sure before he begins that he has something to say and can put it in plain words. I've seen Dr. Flesh grow in mastery of the tricky problems of readability. And I feel an avuncular, beg pardon, an uncle like pride in his achievements. On that account, I am willing to risk putting a few words of my own ahead of of his, although his book is every way speaks for itself. It might be worth a moment of a reader's time to be told that the deceptive. Ease and clarity in Dr. Flesh's writing are not only the showing of his own skill, but they are also the result of his acquaintance with scientific studies in the psychology of verbal communication. Gray, Thorndike, Lorge, Dale, Strang, Gates, and Flesh himself, among all others, have made advances in finding out what readers get and what they do not get, out-of-looking of of black marks on a white page. It is not only that investigators have discovered that many young people go through school or are pushed through without ever really learning to read. That is true, of course, and our so-called literacy is only a shallow statistical fact. Many people can read, haltingly, if they must, but they do not have enough skill to enjoy it. They would rather look at pictures. Whether or not they understand the pictures is another question. And yet these people, millions of them, vote and run machinery and handle the dangerous gadgets of a civilization of which they understand very little. Only those who have made or followed special investigations know the extent of this real illiteracy. They ought to be taught to read. They're not lacking in intelligence and they ought to be taught to read. But when we have granted that, what we do know, what do we do about it? Send them back to school? By whose orders? They certainly will not go on their own initiative. Do better with the next generation? Of course, that is a possible achievement. In the meantime, there is one thing we can do and that is to see that a few books on important subjects get written in language that they, These millions of amiable but letter-blind friends can follow. More than that, we can see that the books they need to read, the documents they have to understand, the instructions that will keep them out of trouble, are written in plain English. There is nothing anti-literary in such a suggestion. In the great stream of English literature there are two lines, one ornate, the other plain, and surely no one will say that the Swift was less than Sir Thomas Brown. And in any case, the improvement of writing in official documents and signs would be toward plainness and clarity if it could be achieved at all. Remember, the now fading signs of the war years, illumination is required to be extinguished before these premises are closed to business. Are those the sacred accents of literature? As a matter of fact, all the argument against readable books on the ground of literary taste would still be beside the point, if it had any value. The help that Dr. Flesh is offering to struggling writers is not for those whose business it is to create literature. We live, unluckily perhaps, in a world where a good deal of public and private business has to be done in print or in typescript. Nearly everyone must write, and most of these routine matters, the one virtue that is important and seldom shown is to be understood. The scientists began some years ago to discover the real nature of unreadability. Dr. Flesh is here trying something that goes beyond diagnostic studies and is probably more difficult. He is offering sound and practical rules for producing the readable kind of writing stepping out of the role of scientist and becoming a teacher and giving a good example of the skill he is trying to teach. There are a good many teachers in our secondary schools who would get further in their task of making literate young men and women out of careless boys and girls if they could understand and inculcate the principles set forth in this brief book. And in the field of public affairs, it might be said with batted breath, That some composers of government orders, some orators in the cause of labor, some public relations men in business payrolls could profit by the use of these rules. we might go so far as to say that diplomats and politicians too could get some good out of these exercises in plain speaking, if we could be sure that they desire to be clearly understood. Writing for any practical purpose is a difficult and elusive art, Anyone who can, as Rudolf Flesh has done, make our success more likely, deserves our gratitude and our respectful attention. Chapter 1 Plain Talk is an Art. This is a book on plain talk. It tells you how to speak and write so that people understand what you mean. If you never write anything and never talk to anybody but your family or maybe a few friends and neighbors, you won't need this book. Your listeners will tell you if they don't understand or they will frown or look puzzled or just blank. You will never be in doubt whether what you say is plain if it isn't you will have to repeat it until it is but people who never talk to more than half a dozen others at a time are rare the chances are you are not one of them rather you're someone who has to make speeches address meetings give lectures and radio talks write letters or reports or articles or books all these things mean that you have to talk to an audience who can't talk back. You cannot even look at them to see whether they understand or not. For all you know, they may screw up their faces or shrug their shoulders or turn away, unable to make head or tail of anything you say. But you can't see them because they are very—they're way down at the far end of the hall, or thousands of miles away sitting before a radio are separated from you by weeks or months when they read what you wrote. There is nothing more important to you as a speaker and writer than that your audience understand you. And on just this point, you can never be sure. You are forever guessing. This is unfortunate. It means that you may never learn how to make yourself better understood. As As long as you are just guessing, You have no way of knowing whether your guess was good or bad, and whether you're getting better or worse. What you need is a check on your performance. Without a check, you can't learn anything. This is an important psychological principle. It was proved a few years ago in an interesting experiment by Professor E.L. Thorndike. What he did was this. He took a student and told him to draw, blindfold. Lines, exactly four inches long. For days and days the student tried, but there was no sign of the progress. The length of his lines remained a matter of pure chance. The reason was, of course, that Professor Thorndike never told him how long his lines were. He had no yardstick, therefore he could not learn. As a speaker and writer, you are well equipped with yardsticks and standards and rules for things like grammar, Or spelling or usage you can make sure beyond doubt that lay is a past tense of to lie or that analyze is spelled with a Y or that all right is written as two words all these things you can learn simply by looking them up on reference book and making it a habit to follow the rule but if you want to make sure that your listeners or readers or readers will understand these books won't help you. If your readers feel that you are too highbrow for them, they won't be satisfied if you tell them that you used Roget's Thesaurus or Webster's Dictionary. What you need is a reference book on simple language, and you won't find such a book in your desk. To be sure, it is not hard to find advice on how to write. There are thousands of books on that subject, after all, books are written by people whose business is writing, and who are eager, as eager to talk shop as anybody else. You can go for your advice to Aristotle's Rhetoric, or to Schopenhauer's essay on Style, to modern authors like W. Somerset Magum, The Summing Up, or Stephen Leacock, How to Write, or to countless others who set down their experience in working with words. They all agree on how to make people understand. They all tell you to be simple, to use ordinary plain language, to make sure a sentence is short, and to use familiar everyday words. After you have read a dozen or so books on style and writing, you get tired of such general suggestions and impatient to know just how you go about being simple, how you can make sentences short, and how you can tell a familiar word. At that point you will probably turn to textbooks on composition, handbooks on usage and so on but you are in for a disappointment. Their suggestions are usually just as vague as those by the great writers and if specific they are likely to be arbitrary and often ridiculous. Here for instance is a recent 820 page college textbook on English composition written by four university professors. You look up style and you find this. A familiar style is created through the use of familiar words, which are usually short, Saxon words. It is frequently desirable to use the longer word because it is more precise or more cultured than the short word, but vigor and ease are often sacrificed when the rugged Saxon word is supplanted by the Latinistic word. So their tip is to use words with Saxon rather than Latin roots. But how can you take such advice seriously when it comes out of an ivory tower where Saxon words are spoken of as rugged? If you follow the four professors, then indeed writer and undertaker are rugged. And in fact, author and mortician are more precise and more cultured. But Saxon words are usually short and easy, you say. Of course they are. And so are face, pair, and street, which come from Latin. But maybe you are prejudiced against textbooks anyhow. Maybe you would go for advice to one of those handbooks on speaking and writing that are written for adults. Let us look at a recent book on English usage by a famous literary critic. Under the heading Compactness, We find the following rule make your sentences compact use a word to do the work of a phrase when possible without loss to the idea intended the sentence she ran down the corridor in haste may without the slightest loss of meaning be more economically stated thus she ran down the corridor hastily that's economy for you two syllables made into three and the colloquial, in haste, replaced by the liter- literary, hastily. If you follow this rule, you can be sure only of only one thing, you'll make it harder for your reader. Makeshift device. Occasionally, however, you come upon hints on simple language that seem to be straight out of the horse's mouth. You see no reason why you shouldn't trust an article on, quote, two-syllable science written by a man who prepares instruction booklets for a leading automobile manufacturer. This man, if anybody, must know the secrets of simple language. You think, here's what he says. There are numerous devices that help create the type of atmosphere desired in this kind of booklet. One, for example, is the use of the word incidentally in introducing a further step in the development of the story. Footnotes offer a convenient means of conveying information in a casual manner. This would be just funny if it were not for the fact that the writer may still be at at large explaining the workings of your car with clever incidentalies and casual footnotes. And what's more, there are probably many other writers who read this article and use his ideas now for their own copy. Anyway... Here you are trying to find advice on simple language and all you get is generalities or the suggestion of putting rugged, compact words casually in a footnote. You will find no such nonsense in this book. To be sure, I shall give you specific suggestions on how to build your sentences and how to choose your words. But these rules will never be arbitrary. In other words, this book contains only advice that is based on scientific evidence. If you follow it, you will be certain that people will understand you better. Why? Well, try to think of simple language in terms of industrial research. When a plastics manufacturer, say, gets interested in producing a new kind of material that will stand a certain amount of stress, pressure, and heat, the chemists in their laboratories go to work to find the right formula. They start with the idea that a certain combination of elements might do the trick. Put it together and test it for stress, pressure, and heat. If the new plastic stands all the tests, it is put in production and in due course, it appears on the market. There is no reason why you can't apply the same principle to language. Suppose you want to write something for boys in 5th grade. You have a notion that understanding has something to do with the length of the sentences and so you take a number of stories with sentences of various lengths and let a group of 5th grade boys read them. Next, you ask the boys questions to test whether they understand each story, and then you find the average sentence length of those stories all of them understood. Result: If you write four boys in 5th grade, your average sentence should contain so-and-so many words. Now, if you apply this technique to a large number of language elements, and to many different types of readers and listeners, you can work out exactly style formulas for whatever audience you have to talk to. This book is really a collection of those of such formulas or recipes in convenient form. One more general specific principle has been used for this book. Science, as you know, is international. It cuts across national border lines in a real sense. Experiments carried out in Sweden are followed up in England and tested in America? If a scientific fact had been verified once, it may be used anywhere. You may wonder how this principle can be applied to language research, since each nation speaks differently. But the fundamentals of language and the psychology of human speech are the same everywhere, and if one country adapts, rather adopts a practical, simple linguistic device, it might well be transferred to another language. Take, for instance, modern Persian, which has done away with articles exactly the same simplification as being used today by our headline writers who write Red Army Takes Kiev Kiev, instead of The Red Army Takes Kiev. Of course, they are not consciously imitating Persian, but in other instances, this might not be a bad idea. So in this book, you will find quite a few recommendations that are based on practices in foreign languages. But maybe you don't care for scientific rules on in, in your speaking and writing. Maybe you have been teaching for 20 years and trust your experience. Or you are a young writer and feel sure of your natural gift for simple language. If you have that gift, you may be just, justly proud. It is rare, and people like Paul de DeCroof and Stuart Chase are paid well for their unusual skill. Less gifted popularizers, as a rule, rely on some makeshift device to keep in touch with their audience. One well-known writer of juveniles writes all her books for her 8-year-old nephew, Tommy. Another experienced platform speaker makes it a habit to address an old man somewhere in the 10th or 12th row to the left. Such schemes may work well, but in the end, their success depends upon your own power of imagination.